Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I know what it's like to hear those three words. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. One day I said to my wife, Linda, that I hated the fact that I had cancer. And she looked at me and said, no, sweetheart, we have cancer. This transformed the way I looked at cancer because every one of us is touched by it in some way. Patients and survivors, caregivers and medical professionals, and we all have a story to tell. On each episode, we share those stories to inform, inspire, and provide hope to all of us who are affected by cancer to remind us that we are not alone. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 179 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. Before I get to this week's guest, I want to remind you to check out our guest as we have in every episode, Brody Nicholas from Campaign One at a Time. Brody will be introducing our new child of the month, Benny, and sharing his heartfelt story. So do check out Brody's segment uh, of this podcast. And let's get to this week's guest, and her name is Dr. Valina Wright. Dr. Wright is a women's wellness expert and board-certified gynecologic oncologist at Beth Israel Leahy Health and Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. With over 25 years of experience, she has been recognized numerous times by Castle Connolly Regional Top Doctors List, Boston Magazine, North Shore Magazine, and as an exceptional woman in medicine. She's also the author of the new book, it's time you knew the power of your choices to prevent women's cancer. So join me now for my conversation with Dr. Valena Wright. Valena, thank you so much for joining us on We Have Cancer. I really appreciate you coming on and reaching out to me to, to be on the show. Uh, women's cancers is not a topic specifically we've covered, so I really appreciate it. And as I was reading through your, your bio and, uh, and parts of your book, the first thing I noticed, and, and this seems to be a common theme, is you talked about uh, on your website your grandmother. Tell, yes. us a, tell us about the role she played in your life and the impact she had and, and how she was your inspiration to pursue medicine as a career. So I grew up in Prince Edward Island, Canada, uh, which is a pretty small rural area. And my grandmother, amazingly, was one of the first public health nurses on Prince Edward Island. And she had traveled in the 1930s to Toronto to get her education. And so for that time period, that's, you know, a lot of women at that time didn't have access to education. And so, you know, she always had a love of learning. And when we were kids and my parents would drop us off, my older sister, Debbie, and myself, for my grandmother to watch us, she would have us fold bandages with her for the Red Cross. You know, the little squares that you make when you get an injection and they put on your the needle site. And if we were able to fold them correctly, we would get Seagram's ginger ale. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and so I like to joke and say my medical training started at age six. <laughs> and so my grandmother, you know, inspired me that way because when she would be watching us, she'd always have something really interesting for us to do, um, you know, some sort of challenge or art project or, you know, things that kept us entertained and out of trouble, but were really interesting and fun to do with her. What do you think now that she's, you know, you've had a you know plus 20 year career uh, as a gynecological oncologist, you've written a book, uh, which is, you know, so exciting. Uh, you know, it's time you knew the power of your choices to prevent women's cancer. She's looking down and seeing all this. What do you think she thinks? Well, that's a that's a, a good question. So I think my grandmother would be astonished by the technology and the way we perform surgery today. You know, there's a, a saying, it's not your mother's hysterectomy, even for how we perform hysterectomy compared to 10, 20 years ago. So like in the 1930s, I mean, obviously that was a problem with antibiotics, sepsis, surgical technique. Um, but I can see her shaking her finger at me because public health isn't what it should be. <laughs> you know, we have an obesity epidemic in the United States and the COVID pandemic, again, the importance of public health, the importance of um, caring for our communities, not just ourselves, because the health of our family and our neighbors impacts our own health. And I think at times we become very self-centered perhaps, or focused just on ourselves and self-care is critically important too, but we live with others and it's really important to remember that. And hopefully public health, the importance of public health can't be understated. So she would, she would be, yeah, it's great. You can do a robotic hysterectomy, Valina, but now the third leading cause of death in the United States is a pandemic. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Uh, I was uh, on a call and, um, you know, this is, as we're recording this, it's March. This episode is coming out mid-June. Uh, it's Colon Cancer Awareness Month, with which our listeners know is a topic that hits close to home for me. And they said that because of COVID, that the screening rates for colon cancer have dropped 90%. Are you seeing the same impact when as it relates to screenings for women's cancers? So that's a great question as well. We know, you know, for colon cancer, we have screening tests. For not for some gynecologic cancers, we really don't have a screening test. Um, the one cancer that we can screen the best for is cervix cancer. And we screen historically with pap smears, and there's some transition now to screen primarily for the presence of high-risk HPV because that's the underlying etiology. But that's the only women's cancer we have approved screening test for. So the, you know, we have the two extremes in gynecologic cancers. We have cervix cancer, which we can screen for and we could prevent, and we have a vaccine. And really, if you have access to care and you schedule screenings, you treat the abnormals, you get vaccinated, your risk of cervix cancer is dramatically de decreased. Most cases are in the developing world. On the other end of the spectrum for gynecologic diseases, ovarian and fallopian tube cancers, where despite years of research, we do not have a screening test. And it's a myth. People think if they get an ultrasound or a CA-125, 
that they're fine, but that's just not true. There's no screening test for ovarian and uh, fallopian tube cancers. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the We Have Cancer Show. And as always, thank you so much to Lee for providing this amazing opportunity to spread awareness for our campaign kids. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brody Nicholas and I have the honor of leading Campaign One at a Time. This month, we're sponsoring Benny, a three-year-old cancer patient from El Paso, Texas. Benny is currently battling neuroblastoma and has recently undergone tumor removal and is now preparing for two cycles of stem cell transplant. He has a love for nature, animals, and cars, and Lightning McQueen is his favorite. We want to help Benny experience a Cars Parade firsthand, which is why we're on a mission to raise $10,000 to send Benny and his family on a much-needed vacation to Hollywood Studios where he can see Lightning McQueen up close and personal. You can learn more about Benny's campaign and how you can help by visiting wehavecancershow.com forward slash Benny. Thank you so much for listening, and let's keep spreading good together so we can make more amazing memories possible for another brave kid like Benny. Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. Since we're on the topic, what are some of the warning signs that uh, could uh, surface that you would say to a woman they need to go see their see their doctor if they experience them? So it depends again on the cancers. And for a gynecologic oncologist, the most common cancer that I treat is uterine cancer. And these cancers, generally the most common type, arises in the lining of the uterus. And usually it occurs after menopause. So fortunately, most women, if they start to have some bleeding after menopause, which is defined as one year with no menstruation, they do recognize it as abnormal and come in. The trick sometimes, though, is even if you have one episode or spotting, it doesn't have to be leading to where you need a pad or you should never dismiss it and say, oh, it's just a period and ignore it if it's been a whole year because that's your only symptom sometimes. Um, So postmenopausal bleeding. But in the younger age groups, it's harder because of menstrual bleeding. And so it's harder. Sometimes people dismiss it because they're used to having menstrual bleeding. Women actually spend seven years of their lives menstruating if you put it all in a row. So people do get used to abnormal bleeding patterns also from causes that aren't cancer, but can impact their lives significantly because of the abnormal bleeding, such as fibroids, for example. And so it's really a little trickier in premenopausal women to sort out the difference between what's normal and what's abnormal bleeding. But you should never be bleeding in between your periods. You should never be bleeding after sexual relations. Those are things you should definitely see your doctor for. And just to point out as well, in uterine cancer, the, the cohort or the group of women with the highest increase over the last um, time interval in the rates of uterine cancer are young women between the ages of 25 and 40. And there's different thoughts about that, but it likely ties to the increasing rate of obesity. And it, you know, the doctors don't always think of it. And so if you go to your doctor for abnormal bleeding, and it's common to have a birth control pill, for example, prescribed to try and manage that bleeding, if it doesn't correct it, it's important to go back to your doctor and If your body mass index is elevated more than 30, that changes the criteria for when the doctor would actually do a sample from the lining of the uterus. 
to help exclude it. So that's uterine cancer. The symptoms generally are abnormal bleeding. Cervix cancer specifically can be postcoital bleeding. That it, uh, just because if there's a growth on the cervix, just normal intimate relationships can sometimes cause bleeding. And then vulvar cancers, not so common, but um, itching is the main symptom. And it's a problem because itching can be for many reasons, obviously, besides vulvar cancer. And so often women will be given a cream or uh, antibiotic and maybe not even have an exam. And so in some types of vulvar cancer, the diagnosis is delayed 18 months from when they first present with vulvar itching until they actually get a biopsy and a diagnosis. So the vulvar skin, it's like the skin anywhere in our body. And just because it's on the vulva, it shouldn't be ignored. Um, squamous cell cancers, basal cell cancers, melanoma, um, HPV, genital warts, all of those things can occur on the skin. And it's important if you have symptoms you know, a lot of women, obviously, no one really volunteers for a gynecologic or pelvic exam, but it's better to go and have an exam and get checked out than to have a delayed or misdiagnosis. And what about ovarian cancer? So ovarian, I kind of left to the last because that's a, a controversial subject about um, diagnosis. It used to be referred to as the silent killer or the silent disease, but that term was retired by uh, patient advocacy groups because Often women did have symptoms, but they were subtle and they're slower, insidious in onset. So early satiety, feeling full, even though you haven't eaten much, um, bloating, a change in bowel symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, noticing that your clothes don't fit, like your waist has expanded, having to go to the bathroom more often which is a tricky one, urinary frequency or having to get up at night to go to the bathroom because a lot of that is dismissed and the woman is just told she's getting older, <laughs> right? right? And so it's hard because the symptoms are very subtle in some cases and occur slowly over time. It's kind of, I guess the best way to try to explain it is if you're pregnant and you slowly have your pregnancy grow, you don't really have pain, right? It, you might get a little bloating, a little pressure. And so if you have a mass growing, the same thing can happen. It, it may have no symptoms and can get quite large. I'm always surprised that sometimes people will come into the office and, you know, it's easier for, for me to, I want to just say, I'm at the end of the road. And so they've seen their primary care and other doctors. So I'm always looking at this retrospectively. So, but it's, um, you know, surprising when women come in and just standing, looking at them from the door, I know they have a pelvic mass and I'm surprised it wasn't picked up or, or noticed. And some, sometimes that potentially is denial, but I think ovarian cancer is not that common and people just don't think of it. Most women who get diagnosed with ovarian cancer have had a variety of tests, including a colonoscopy, a gastroenterology consult, urine samples, but they may not have had a GYN exam. Because often what happens when women finish having their children, they stop going to the gynecologist or the OBGYN, and then they go to their primary care. And Maybe they're not having a well woman visit once a year or they're not offered a, a pelvic exam. So they can miss, some of these things can be missed. And this one hits pretty close to home to you 
because your older sister Debbie passed away from ovarian cancer. Yes. So that was obviously a difficult uh, diagnosis, challenging diagnosis for Debbie and our family. And particularly, I think for me, as you know, they they tell you in medical school, you're never supposed to treat your family member. (laughs) And it's hard because it's a different hat and you see things from a different perspective. But one of the motivating things for the book was Debbie's diagnosis of ovarian cancer. About 20% of ovarian cancer can be hereditary. And a family history is a really important piece of information, not just for ovarian cancer, but for uterine cancer, colon cancer, because some of these cancers are hereditary, meaning they can be passed down by genes through the generations. And they can be passed, some people don't realize, from fathers, not just mothers. You get half and half, right? And so sometimes family history is limited and you can miss the pedigree because of smaller family size, people are adopted, people don't talk about cancer. So family history is not that reliable way to determine your genetic risk of developing a cancer. So anyone with a personal history of ovarian cancer should have genetic testing, especially now that some of our newer treatments are based on genetic test results. And so cascade testing is a common term. I I don't know if you're familiar with it, but basically what it means is if someone has a positive gene mutation, their relatives should be tested for that same mutation. And if you have a gene mutation, then you're at increased risk and you qualify for screening or risk-reducing procedures or medications that otherwise you wouldn't be aware of. So with my knowledge and my sister's diagnosis, I had risk-reducing surgery. And I have two other sisters. One had um, gynecologic surgery for other indications. And my youngest sister, being younger, did want to do risk-reducing surgery because she was still far from menopause. And her primary care doctor told her it wasn't necessary. (laughs) And so she didn't do it, which was fine. I mean, you don't want to do surgery. It's always a risk-benefit analysis. And having an early surgical menopause increases all-cause, what we refer to as death from other causes or all-cause mortality by about 10%. So you want to have a good reason to do risk-reducing surgery, not just, you know, you you want to make sure. So the surprising thing was when my youngest sister had the laparoscopic removal of the tubes and ovaries, which is done as an outpatient procedure and has a quick recovery about two weeks. Her pathology report showed the earliest stage of fallopian tube cancer. And so we were so lucky that she went ahead and had that surgery because at stage, it was referred to as a stick tumor uh, standing for serous tubal intraepithelial carcinoma. That's a big Mouthful, but basically it means that it wasn't invasive growing deeply into the tissue and it hadn't metastasized. So, surgery alone, no chemotherapy, um, and she's fine. Fantastic. Yeah. One of my biggest ahas as I was looking through the book was I was under the impression it was just men that don't go to the doctor, that don't talk about their symptoms. And that's not the case, is it? <laughs> no, especially uh, for gynecologic problems, because people get embarrassed. They don't want to have a gynecologic exam. You know, there's different reasons for that. Sometimes, obviously, it can be uncomfortable. You know, 
sometimes there's a history of trauma or sexual abuse and people can't tolerate the pelvic exam, in which case we do examination under anesthesia. So it's important to, if that's the reason you're not going, it's not an, ex, you know, you shouldn't not go. You, you go to your doctor and you say, listen, this is the issue. I can't tolerate a pelvic exam in the office. And then you can go to the operating room and get some sedation. You'll be asleep. You won't feel anything. And we won't miss a, a difficult, you know, a potential, a potential diagnosis. You, your, your book talks about the power of choices. Outside of the obvious, which we all know, diet and exercise, what are some of those other important choices that women should be making? So I think women's health hasn't had the same research and attention as men's health. So, you know, diseases affect women in different ways than men. Sometimes presentations are, are quite different for diseases that both sexes have or both genders. Uh, I think heart diseases a perfect example. The way women experience a heart attack is often much different than men. And there's biases on both the patient's part and the physician's part. And there's a, there's a study that shows ambulance drivers that come to pick up women with a heart attack don't turn the sirens on, but they turn them on for men. <laughs> wow. And so it's important as a woman, woman to be able to speak up and ask for what you need and have the vocabulary to do so and to understand the gynecologic anatomy, to be comfortable using the correct words like vulva, vagina, cervix, uterus, tubes, and ovaries, um, so that a woman's body is respected and she gets the best care and that she's not dismissed. And so I think, you know, that's not really answering your <laughs> question. I'm off topic a, <laughs> okay. a little bit, but, uh, but it connects. It connects because women often are multitasking, right? So they work their full-time job, they come home, they take care of a lot of the things in the household. And we all know that not all the, in not all families are the household responsibilities divided equally. And so this is where I'm getting to answer your question, sleep. <laughs> <laughs> so sleep is really important for our well-being, for our mental health, for the stress our body experience. If we're sleep deprived, it's almost impossible to lose weight. If you look at people who work night shifts, the rates of obesity are much higher in people who work the night shift compared to people who work day shift. And we also know that if you eat the exact same amount of calories in a day, but you eat a meal late in the evening before you go to bed at night, you're going to gain more weight than someone who had their intake earlier in the day and only had a light meal later in the day. And part of that is the hormonal response to eating, satiety, how our brain functions in response to the hormones. So sleep is critically important um, in our overall health. It gives our brain a time to rest. Our mood can be impacted. And often good sleep hygiene alone can make people feel so much better. Think about how the opposite, how bad you feel when you didn't get a good night's sleep, right? Yeah. It's remarkable how sleep deprivation can really impair your ability to think clearly, to perform functions. When I was in training, there was no work hour restrictions. 
And so when I was an intern, we used to do um, start at six in the morning, you'd be on call, you stay all night, you stay the next day and go home at six. And then every other night you were on call. So you'd get off work for for 12 hours. (laughs) And you did it. And but, you know, there were times when I slept in my car (laughs) at the parking lot (laughs) rather than drive home. Is that changing now? Yes, there is. I, your listeners should know that. There's a 80-hour work week restriction that the residents love to remind us of all the time, so that they have to go home. <laughs> <laughs> but sleep is, is critically sleep is critically important. You talk also about integrated mes- medicine. Yes. So, you know, it's that same mind-body relationship. Um, how we think matters. What we think about matters. It's really important to be positive because our brain looks for what we focus on in our consciousness. So if I think I'm going to be successful, I'm much more likely to be successful. An example, there's a great psychology experiment. I don't know if you've ever seen it, and I can't tell you the name of the authors right now, but they showed it at one of our um, surgical meetings where there's Men dressed in gorilla suits playing, there's men playing basketball and there's one man dressed in a gorilla suit. And they ask you to watch the movie and count how many times the basketball, how many, like how many times the basketball scores goes through the hoop, right? And you're so fixated on counting that, that you don't see the gorilla walk across the screen. It's online. (laughs) You can look this, you can look the story up, but it's, um, fascinating the way our brains work and we tend to see what we focus on so if we're thinking of something negative we're much more likely to find it than if we're focusing on the positive and i think that's critically important for cancer patients that we should never give up hope that not one person you know you you should yeah and you should, if someone tells you you have a terrible prognosis and there's no hope there's always hope and your body is going to tell you when, you know, things aren't looking rosy, you're going to learn, you're going to feel that you're going to know that your family is going to recognize it. So there's definitely a mind body connection. There's a couple of others. Um, there's one other um, anecdotal story. Like it, this is published data too. If you have allergies to roses, and someone gives you, you know, presents you with a plastic rose, you'll have an allergic reaction. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, we don't understand the brain completely. The other thing I would love for the cancer patients to be aware of too is the, the power of music and how music accesses our brain by a different highway or pathway. And it can bypass the other circuitry or often on ramps that make up our neural pathways. And, and that's best researched in some of the dementias where people who haven't spoken will hear music and all of a sudden speak completely fluently to their therapist with music therapy because it's recalled or, or it's gone deep into the brain in a different way than verbal language. So music can be very powerful Athletes use music um, to perform well. Uh, Surgeons use music in the operating room um, to help them relax and feel less stressful. I choose just 
different music than some of my colleagues. There's <laughs> a podcast where it's a, it's a dream when your guest brings up a topic that you're just about to ask. Oh, good. <laughs> so I, I was just about to go to the place of, I thought I had a diverse playlist till I saw yours <laughs> and I saw Beethoven, Mendelssohn. I'm like, all right, I'm down with those. Drake, Billie Eilish. <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> I think that's a picture of a diverse uh, t- taste in music. So I, I, I grew up with music. And, you know, they say there's, there's um, Scales to Scalpels is a book written by uh, a physician that's part of the Longwood Medical Area Symphony, Symphony Orchestra. And it shows it has a... a, a statement in there that 85% of the top surgeons were trained as musicians in childhood. Wow. And so I I, um, took piano lessons from a young age and in the public school system, they had a really strong string program. And so I loved the cello, but there weren't enough positions for me to play cello. So I had to play viola for a short time. <laughs> I did graduate to the cello in middle school and <laughs> I played all through school, high school. I was a member of the universe. No, I was a member of the, yeah, the Prince Edward Island symphony orchestra. And I, you know, it's really comforting. And sometimes I come home from a day in the OR and I can sit down and just play the piano. And then I don't feel tired after about 30 minutes. It's amazing what it does. Uh, that is so cool. That is so cool. What other, you know, if, if we're going to leave uh, with a message to our, our women listeners, what have we not covered? What do you, what do you want women to know? I think for ovarian cancer, um, there's one piece of information that I think is important that a lot of people don't realize. You know, when we're young, we feel like nothing's going to take us down health-wise, right? But it's the little decisions that we make over a lifetime that we start to see the impact as we age and get older when cancer becomes more common. And cancer is going to affect 38 out of every 100 women. So I really want women to understand their personal risk factors, what screening tests they need to have, the impact of family history, the modifiable risk factors that everyone knows but likes to ignore, (laughs) like the importance of good nutrition, that obesity is associated with 16 different cancers, uterine cancer being number one, over half of the uterine cancer cases are related to obesity, that knowing your risk and getting genetic testing can save your life if you have a gene mutation that you didn't otherwise know about. Mary Claire King, a famous geneticist who discovered the BRCA genes, right? Uh, my hero, I think we should recognize her on Women's <laughs> International Health Day. Um, she advocates that all women should consider genetic testing at age 30 due to the limitations in family history, adoption, and whatnot. And it doesn't mean that if you have a gene mutation, you have to necessarily choose to have risk-reducing surgery or take a medication that's going to decrease your risk. But if you don't know your risk, then you've taken away choice. And choice 
is the greatest potential for human growth. Our ability to recognize our choices and put them in the context of our lives and what's important and meaningful to us so that we make the choice, that we're part of the conversation, that someone's not telling us what to do. I think that's what I want women to know. I want women to have their best health so they can really enjoy their lives, that they can have happiness, healthy family, they can be role models for their children, that um, they don't suffer, especially, you know, what I find difficult is seeing women suffer from cancer that I know could have been prevented. If they only knew, if they only got their children vaccinated against HPV, which is associated with six different cancers, right? And, you know, there's all the fear of vaccination and, oh, is it going to cause sexual promiscuity? I mean, just think about that statement. If you're 18 years old and your mother got you vaccinated at nine and you're 18 thinking about having an intimate relationship, do you think that you're going to remember what your mom did when you were nine? <laughs> and it's not certainly going to make you more sexually promiscuous. So, I mean, common, common sense. Today, look at how many, you know, it's, it's a problem, vaccine hesitancy. It was on the World Health Organization's number one global health risks in 2019. And we have a vaccine that we know is effective, and yet less than half the U.S. population has been vaccinated against HPV, and it's been available for many years now. And Australia is on track to eradicate cervical cancer based on modeling because HPV vaccine is part of the school system vaccination process. It's free. PAP testing, HPV, they actually switched over to primary HPV testing, not a pap smear anymore and treatment of cervical dysplasia. So social determinants of health, access to care, equality of care, not gender bias, not saying HPV vaccine is only for girls, not for men, because now we know that men actually have more HPV-related cancer than women. So, Some of them have been on the show. Right. I heard that episode. I was, I was really proud of him for speaking up and doing his work. It's not, it's not easy to to speak up about some of these things because there's things assumed, there's stereotypes, there's stigma that sometimes can be attached to some of these diagnoses. And as physicians, we're not, we're not judging patients. We shouldn't be judging patients. If you go to your physician, you feel you're being disrespected, dismissed, not, not understood, then you should get a second opinion. Yeah, we've covered that topic here too of of patients who've made the decision to quote unquote fire their doctor. Um, and you're right, it's your health. You have to look out for it. I hope the book allows people to have conversations that are, you know, to have a conversation. There's, there's two people in the conversation. It's it, the doctor. The doctor shouldn't just be talking to you. It should be patient centered care that's focused on you. Sorry. About that that's focused on on you and your goals, and it's important to think about them before you go, obviously, and be prepared. But you know your body the best. What you do every day is going to have such a big impact on your health, more so than going to see a doctor once a year or twice a year. So knowing your body, respecting your health, having goals, setting goals, hopefully, you know, having a a healthy enjoyable life. 
The name of the book is It's Time You Knew, The Power of Your Choices to Prevent Women's Cancer. Dr. Valino Wright has been our guest. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for all that you've shared. Uh, I know that, you know, if at least one person has been swayed to make a different choice and a different decision as a result of our conversation, then certainly it's all been worth it. And I really appreciate the generosity of your knowledge and the generosity of your time. Oh, I'm really pleased to have this conversation with you. And I would say on my website, I have a website, just BelitaWrightMD.com, and it's got the top five actions to take to prevent uh, women's cancers. So I hope uh, your listeners will benefit from our conversation and start some conversations of their own. Absolutely. And we'll have the link to the book and your website in the show notes for today's episode on the wehavecancershow.com website. Melina, thank you again. Be well. It's been a pleasure. You're welcome. It's really my pleasure. I want to thank all of you who supported Linda and I in our virtual Get Your Rear in Gear walk back a couple of weeks ago. We raised, thanks to the generous support of our friends, our family, and our listeners, over $1,000 to support the amazing work that the Colon Cancer Coalition does across the country. And we couldn't be more grateful to all of you that supported our effort. To learn more about how you can support all of the great work that the Colon Cancer Coalition does, participate in many of their events that are scheduled throughout the year across the country, check them out at wehavecancershow.com forward slash CCC. Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter.